1: Howdy! this is Max Bear Junior. Jethro Bodine from the Beverly Hillbillies, and you're listening to the Doctor Sky Show. Hot oh, dog!
0: And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the exciting show that you tell us you like, the Doctor Sky Show, for well over 15 years, talking about great subjects from the realms of astronomy, space, aviation, and weather, and also celebrity guests. Of but first, I'd like to thank our producer extraordinaire, Richard Dugan, of radio station KZSB. That's AM 1290 in the beautiful city of Santa Barbara, California. Today, ladies and gentlemen, a real treat and a high honor. In just a few moments, you'll be speaking, and that is I will be speaking, and you'll be learning and listening to a band Max Baird Jr., otherwise known as Jethro Bodine, from that great 1960s and 70s television series, The Beverly Hillbillies TV Show. And a brief introduction of Max Baer Jr. is coming right back. The son of former heavyweight boxing champion Max Baer. Max Baer Jr. is a classic example of Hollywood typecast. Known around the world as Jethro Bodine in the smash TV series, The Beverly Hillbillies. Baer did not turn work as an actor in Hollywood for three years after The Hillbillies went off the air. Baer finally had to put himself to work as an actor in his movie Macon County Line 1974, which he also wrote and produced with a friend. Oh, it didn't let him escape his Jethro character. He would earned more than thirty-five million dollars in box office and later rental receipts. This, after an initial investment of just over a hundred thousand dollars, not bad for a boy, whoa, with a sixth-grade education. And with that, it's a privilege and honor, Max. Welcome to the radio show. Thank you so much.
1: Hot ah, dog. <laughs> uh,
0: Max, this is great. You know, we came yeah. off another interview, which I won't go into here. Just this past weekend, and literally, you knocked it out of the park here. And why not? I mean, you've got this amazing talent and amazing story. And let's start off by reminiscing just a little bit here for this audience that maybe not know if that doesn't know that is too much about the Beverly Hillbillies. Shame on them! Tell us a little about the show. How long? Uh, how long was it in production? I think it had like 274 episodes. This is incredible.
1: Yeah, that 274, we did nine years on the air, and we were in the top 20 uh, when they canceled us. But uh, when they canceled us, uh, uh, they just they got rid of all the rural shows. You know, the the Jim Neighbors and uh, Hee Haw and the Petticoat Junction, Green Acres, the Hillbillies, the, uh Gomer Pile. They got rid of all the rural, as they used to say, if they got rid of every show with a tree in it. <laughs>
0: you know, hey, it makes sense, but not not a good thing for
1: those. Well, right. I mean, you know, I I, I I enjoyed eating.
0: Yeah. You
1: know, and I got that check every week. You know, and for the people that say they don't do it for the money, they're all liars.
0: How about that.
1: Well, sure. <laughs> of course. Now come along and visit with the Clampett family as they learn the simple pleasures of the hills of Everly. That includes the products of your sponsor of the week, the cereals of Kellogg's, Kellogg's of Battle Creek. ke double double good Kellogg's, best to you. But, hey, you know,
0: I wanted to find this out because the audience, I'm sure, would love to hear this. How does Max Barrett, Jr. become Jethro Bodine? What's that short story about uh, how you got that part? I mean,
1: that's... Oh, I was actually... I was unemployed, and I was sitting at Schwab's Drugstore, which is like the stage Delicatessen in New York, where the actors that are in-between jobs, they call it. They never call themselves out of work. They say in-between jobs. They might be in-between jobs for 10 years, but they're in-between jobs. And I was sitting there with... uh, uh, a gentleman by the name of Clegg Hoyt who's a character actor and his roommate was Rod Steiger in uh, New York when they were when they were young and uh, was sitting there having coffee and uh, Ross Martin came in who was on Mr. Lucky which was a half-hour TV show done by I think Blake Edwards and he came in and said that they were casting uh, an open call, which means that anybody can go down there. Right. You don't have to have an agent or anything. You just go down there mm-hmm. at General Service Studios. And, uh, and uh, you know, they're looking for a young hayseed kind of guy. And I said, well, heck, I'll go take a shot. I'm, I'm in between jobs. Mm-hmm. And, and so I went down there. I got on my motorcycle. I had a Triumph 500 at the time. Awesome. Didn't have a car, and sold that, but I did have a Triumph motorcycle, and uh, I went down there, and uh, I, they said, do you have a Southern accent? Can you do a Southern accent or whatever? And I said, well, I'm a little worse. But I could come back on Monday and do it. It just happened to be a Friday. And so what I did is, I didn't have a Southern accent, as you can tell. But what I did is I went and got an Andy Griffith album and a Jonathan Winters album. And I, I can pick that up audioly pretty well. You know, if I'm with English people, I can pick up an English accent or a German accent or a Russian accent. But I have to hear it. I can't, I can't do it if somebody just says, do that. So anyway, I got that, I, I uh, went back the following week and, and uh, I did a little bit of a sudden accident, did a reading, and about a few weeks later, they called me and said, come on in for a screen test, and I knew they didn't want me, they wanted this guy named Roger Torrey, who I actually knew pretty well, we worked out at the gym, he's a big guy, he's 6'4 and a half, and he was 6'6 six, six and a half, and he weighed about 240, I weighed about 210, and it just was, you know, that was just the size. And uh, so anyway, they kept testing him. Every They'd test him, and then he'd test somebody else, and then they'd test him again. And they tried to get him to, to be more lighter, whatever. And Roger was a little too serious, I guess. Anyway, Irene Ryan was there for testing, and Donna was there for testing. And they didn't really want Irene Ryan, who ended up playing Granny, nor did they want me. So at lunchtime... They never tested us, but uh, we were sitting around there all morning. And she took me over to this place called The Shack, which was just out the back door from General Service Studios. Okay. We went over there, and uh, I had had two double martinis for lunch, and I don't drink. I'm not a drinker, and they hit me pretty good. I mean, I was... I was seeing uh, you know, a lot of people <laughs> and uh, the restaurant became very packed by the time I left. <laughs> anyway, I went back and they said, Max, look, we're running out of time. Oh, they didn't want me anyway. So it was, you know, I figured, oh, what the hell? And uh, they said, look, if you make a mistake, just keep on going. Don't worry about it. We'll uh, take care of it later. And I said, yeah, right. So anyway, I had to do this scene where Buddy Ebsen walks into the cabin, and then I walk into the cabin, and behind him, well, I was so looped from the martinis that I hit the damn door jam when I walked in with my shoulder, and so I just turned to the door jam and said, "Excuse me." (laughs) And uh, Paul Henning, who wrote the show Nobody improvised or did any improv or anything else They told me that he was in the screening room And it was so unexpected That he fell on the floor laughing And he says, that's the guy And uh, that's how I got the job It was by accident I um, probably should have give Beef Eaters gin some of my residuals, but I didn't.
0: What a story, Max. I mean, that's amazing. Hey, folks, if you're just joining us on the Dr. Sky Show, a really phenomenal guest, Max Barrett Jr., Jethro Bodine from that iconic television series, 1960s, 70s, the Beverly Hillbillies. He's kind enough to spend some time.
1: Well, the actual way is you become an icon is you outlive your usefulness.
0: <laughs> you know? <laughs> i got sorry, I got to laugh, because Actually, I'm thinking, I just watched an episode this morning, and I didn't know this. I mean, we watch it again, as I told you in our last interview on MeTV here across America in Phoenix. We watch it. But I didn't know this, that there was uh, Rich Little. Obviously, I'm watching Rich Little do some President Nixon imitation where he's trying to convince uh, Buddy Ebsen, uh, J.D. Clampett, to keep you know to come to the White House and give him his money. I didn't even
1: know that Rich Little was in that series. What an amazing series this is! Well, Brad, uh, Sammy Davis was on there. There were a lot of people on there that were that that, be, that uh, you know became somebody. Sharon Tate actually did fifteen shows on there in a black wig or a brown wig as Miss Hathaway's assistant. Miss Hathaway was Dry- Drysdale, banker. Drysdale's assistant, and Sharon Tate was. Uh, the assistant for uh, for Miss Hathaway. So, and there were a lot of people. There were a lot of different people that came on there. As a matter of fact, Rob Reiner came on there one time, and he was a he played a hippie. Oh, That's yeah. when Rob had hair. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah. I think so Rob, Rob and
1: I, Rob and I, politically, are not the like. He's a he's a liberal, mm-hmm. and like I said, I'm so far to the right I couldn't play third base because you had to go to your left. There you go, Mac. Well,
0: let's talk a little bit more about the show. This is happening September 26, 1962, and I'm reading this, the first of the episodes in season one. That's incredible, and it goes to number one across the country, not just for that year, but a whole bunch of years. So what do you think was the, the secret? Why why so popular? And I'm, and I'm proud of it myself to say, wow, that's great. But tell us, uh, why, why so popular? I mean, it, it must have had... You know, Best of old ingredients,
1: obviously, and it does. Nobody had an idea. Good Lord. If anybody had an idea what would make a success, there wouldn't be any failures on television, and most of the shows all fail. There are very few that were, success- that were you, know, that are, you know that are a success, and then they try to do a sequel to it, and it fails. Nobody knows. Hell, it just is an accident. All, all four of us, uh, the, or six of us, I should say, the Four Hillbillies, and then Mr. Drysdale and Miss Hathaway. It seemed that they just matched. And Paul Henning, who was a comedy writer, he wrote for the George Burns and Gracie Allen show, and also loved that Bob, the Bob Cummings show. He, he just, uh, it just happened to be something that he liked, because he was from Missouri, and he, and he knew the, the, those kind of characters, it was actually written as a cartoon, and then Jim Aubrey, who was the head of CBS programming in, the, in those days, in 62, didn't want to come, he didn't want a cartoon. It wasn't time for, uh, what do you call this show that's been on forever, I don't watch it, but it's uh, The Simpsons, I guess, and oh, uh, and uh, and, uh uh, they said, we don't want it. You got to make it a real show. And that's when they cast Buddy Ebsen. He was the only one that was cast without having any, uh, didn't test or anything. Well, he shouldn't have had to. I mean, good Lord. He'd done Broadway. He'd played everything. And uh, he had that country feel to him and, uh, anyway, because even in the, the, the movie, uh, uh, with uh, with uh, Audrey Hepburn and George Peppard, Breakfast at Tiffany's, yes. he played a kind of a country guy. So uh, it was easy, and he was also he also played in Davy Crockett. Played uh, Davy Crockett's a buddy in uh, in Davy Crockett. Yes,
0: this is amazing. I mean, talking about Buddy Epson, I mean, obviously, I followed him just from what I can read and. What a great guy, from what I'm reading, but your relationship with him, uh, a strong bond between the two of you, would you say? Or-
1: well, yeah. Well, well, my dad had died in 59, and so he actually, on the series, not only was he my Uncle Jed, he he he, he appeared to me to be uh, a father figure. He was born at the same time my dad was, 1909, or 1908, 1909, right in that area, and uh um, uh, so I looked at him like a, a father figure. You he bet. took me. He took me sailing, and he really wanted to get rid of me because the boom came around and hit <laughs> me. I was I was pulling on the uh, uh, the, well, I don't, the the wenches to try to pull the right. sail around on a on a lap thirty six foot lap that was his boat that he had down in Marie in uh, uh, Balboa Island, and he says coming about, and I said coming to what? And I stood up, and the boom hit me. I went, and, uh, went in the ocean, but I had a bad rope tied to me, so I, uh, you know it drugged me a little bit. But he was laughing; he thought it was funny. I was, I was just, I said, I said, you're not supposed to surf behind or you know ski behind the sailboat.
0: That's
1: amazing. You know, I was either that or I was going to be an anchor. Yeah, you don't want to
0: be that. No. A special guest on this Dr. Sky show today really knocked it out of the park. And obviously, we're so enamored to have him. We're so grateful for his time. We're speaking, of course, with Max Bear Jr., the Beverly Hillbillies, a great part of Americana, and television, and it'll go down in history, of course.
1: Well, I was born Max Barrett Jr., but I'm going to die, Jethro Bodine. There you it go. I can't help it, man. That's it. I told somebody, that's what I'm, I'm going to have my headstone made up that way, even though there isn't going to be anybody in the box. Because I'm going to be cremated and thrown to the fish up here at Lake Tahoe. There you go. Wow. I'm going to be recycled.
0: There you go. That's a good way to go, Max. But you know what? Let's talk a little bit about your dad. I mean, this is so amazing. When I read the story, the story, I mean, you you know this family, of course, But your dad has one of the most incredible fights with Max Schmeling in Yankee Stadium, 1933. 60,000 people. I'm reading attended that fight. And that's just so incredible because there's a lot of history in that. But I watched a lot of YouTube videos on your dad, even the video that shows you as
1: baby bear, with you and your mom. So well, that was the time. That was the time when my dad fought. Uh, he fought uh, Tommy Farr. He got beat in London. Far beat him in London, and uh, then my dad beat him over in uh, the United States. Yeah. Well, wow,
0: amazing stories about your dad. I mean, I even read that. Your dad had a close relationship with, with allegedly with Reddick Garbo, and that she was never letting anybody on the set. But your
1: dad, she just—I don't know. You know the Well, he was so he was he was he was gregarious. He was good looking. He was well built. He could fight. He was famous. And uh, after the Schmeling fight, uh, because Ansel Hoffman, who was my dad's manager, and was Jewish, uh I uh, knew that uh, he could develop a, a, a kind of a, a, an anti hero between Schmeling, and, who was German, and my dad, who had a little bit of Jewish in him. He wasn't really Jewish. Right. If you, you, to be Jewish, you have to have your mother has to be Jewish. Well, my dad, my grandfather was Jewish, but not my mother. My mother was, my grandmother was Scotch Irish. <laughs> so anyway, uh, they pushed that. Uh, uh, the Jewish thing, and that's the first time he went into the ring with the Star David on his trunk. Before that, he was a California bear. Wow. And uh, and uh, when he beat Schmelling, well, he became a hero to the Jewish uh, group in Hollywood, and Louis B. Mayer uh, put him in a movie called The Price Letter and the Lady that was really developed for Clark Gable. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, that's that's the true story of it, and he and he ended up with Myrtle Loy and Walter Houston and uh, Vince Barnett and Primo Carnero was in it, Jack Dempsey. It's re- Actually, if you get a chance, it's 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 in uh, it's on TV. It's called The Price Fighter and the Lady. And actually, he could act. He never did before, but he always wanted to be an actor, not a fighter. He, he Like he told me as when I was a kid, he said, Son, I used to buy the all the girls mink coats, and it wasn't to keep them warm. It was to keep them quiet. <laughs> I love it. Well, he got he got he got uh, nailed for three or four times for breach of promise. In those days, if you promised a girl you were going to marry her, you had to marry her. Otherwise, she sued you. Geez, I didn't even know that. Oh yeah, it's called breach of promise. Wow, i got to
0: study that one after we... Finish.
1: <laughs> well, luckily, they don't have it anymore. They, 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 went, they went to where, for a while, they went to where they would divide up uh, the uh, earnings of the, of, of, the, uh, of the person that earned the money, but they gave it mostly to the women because the judges didn't want to go home and be poisoned by their wives.
0: Uh, wow, I, you know, I'm learning something, and so are our listeners. With Max Fair Jr., we got a few more minutes with you, Max. And again, I appreciate this opportunity here to reminisce about this great part of American television history. Let's talk about Irene Ryan. I mean, a beautiful woman. If you take a look at her pictures, you know, in her long, deep acting career. Talk about her
1: for a moment. And oh, she was great. She was. She was. She was more fun than she was more fun than a barrel of snakes, man. I'm telling you, she just. She was just as as cranky in the morning when she'd come in and they'd do her hair and give her her coffee or breakfast because they had to bring in the girls earlier because they had to do their hair and makeup and stuff. Sure. And hell, I just rolled in and they just looked at me and powdered my face as that was it. <laughs> you know, you know, I said, well, I was perfect. You know, they didn't have to do anything with me. <laughs> anyway, Irene was terrific. Her name was Irene Noblette. That was her main name. She used to do the Bob Hope tours. She had this quivering lower lip. Then she went on a lot of the Bob Hope shows when she, he would go and entertain the troops during the forties. She came out of the Toby shows, uh, stage shows uh, with her husband, uh, Tim Ryan, it used to be called Tim and Irene. And they did a comedy act together. And, uh, that's why, uh, uh, she had a great deal of experience of singing and dancing because in Vaudeville, you did pretty much everything, you know.
0: What amazing stories. I mean, thinking back, i got to ask you this. The difference, in, and I know you'll jump all over this one, and I hope you do. The difference between Hollywood then and now, what say you? I mean, it's pretty obvious if I were to give an opinion, but we're not here to listen to my opinion.
1: Well, Hollywood has turned into a bucket of shit. Yeah. And uh, everybody that is an actor that's got a job as a political opinion, and they don't even know how to spell politics. <laughs> you know, they don't have a clue. Hell, John Boyd and I and uh, uh, Kelsey Grammer and a couple of other guys, I think Bruce Willis and Selick and Stallone, we're kinda, we're, they're kind of conservative. Well, John is definitely conservative, voice. Oh, I like John voice. But, uh, but he's a good guy. Uh, John's a real good guy and one hell of an actor. As a matter of fact, I think he's a better actor as an older guy than he was as a young man. When he w- worked with Dusty or even when he did uh, the movie with, uh, I think it was called Coming Home with uh, Jane Fonda and Bruce Dern. When he won the Academy Award, I think he's given some wonderful performances like in The Champ and in some other places. He's just, he's just a real good guy. I like John very much. Absolutely. Well, that's all I'll talk about, politics and Hollywood. But just to
0: wrap this up for a few more minutes, other experiences. I mean, Donna Douglas, I mean, got Ray Bailey, of course, Milburn Drysdale, Nancy Culp. I mean... This became your family for so long and became America's family.
1: Well, Ray was Ray was a character. He didn't like anybody. <laughs> really? No, Ray was just, Ray was Ray. He he was his own best friend. <laughs> he didn't have, he didn't have a lot of friends, I guess. But he was always belly aching.
0: Every day. Ah,
1: ah, blah, blah, blah. He was always griping about this or that. He didn't have enough lines, or the lights weren't right, or whatever. was, but he was a character. I liked him because he made me laugh. He was so off the wall. And uh, and uh, and Irene, Irene, Irene was. I stood in her light one time. They called it her key light. That's the light that lit up her eyes and did that. And I guess I stood in her key light, and so she told the. Uh, the prop man, when we were in the kitchen one time, I was doing a scene, and she was frying something, and he went, when she was supposed to hit me in the head, she was, they were, They went to bring in the rubber prop pan, and she says, no, nah, this is okay, I didn't hear her say that, But she used the real pan and hit me in the head and <laughs> knocked me out, and she says, stay out of my key light. <laughs> That's right there, actually.
0: Hey, Max, i got to ask this. You and Elvis Presley, I mean, you had a a friendship? I mean, talk about that.
1: Well, I didn't like Elvis. Uh, I met him in 1960. I really hated him. I hated the guy. I didn't like him at all. Well, he was good looking. He was rich. He had all the girls, and he had talent. He could (laughs) sing. What's there to like about the guy? So we used to play flag football, and all I wanted to do was be on the opposite side of wherever he played. Because I wanted to knock him on his ass every time I could. And, and ever after the games, he would invite all the, guys, all the players up to Perugia Way, where he was staying in Bel Air, and Joe Esposito, which is one of his guys, and uh, 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 Sonny and Red West and Lamar and all the guys that, the Memphis Mafia Group, and then all the guys on the other team. And Elvis was very generous. He would invite all the people up. Well, I would never go up there because I didn't figure, A, it was right after I wanted to kill him every time. I didn't care whether he had the ball or not. I wanted to knock him on his butt. So, hell, he was not very athletic. Really? The two most unathletic guys I ever met were Clint Eastwood and Elvis Presley, and you would never know it by the characters they played. Well, you're right. but and two of the people that you would never think would be talented. Well, one was Woody Allen. Woody could play baseball, football. He could play everything. Now that he was very athletic, he could. He could. I think, as a matter of fact, I'm not sure whether he did a layup or he dunked a basketball. But he would. He could really. He was very, very athletic as well as he could play uh, musical instruments. But he was a very talented athlete. Anyway, uh, so. I would knock him down and all that. So one time it rained on on Friday night. We played Saturday at this Beverly Glen Park, which was on uh, uh, Sunset. And, uh, oh, gosh, it was just off of Sunset Boulevard at Beverly Glen. And uh, it, it was really muddy. And uh, we still played. And I went to hit him in Red West. was. Got the ball and was making a sweep around left end, or right end, and my, to my left, but to their right. And Elvis was like a pulling guard or a pulling end, uh, the position that he played. And I went to try to clip him, and I missed and went face down in the mud. And I rolled over, and I looked up, and there's this guy looking down at me. It's Elvis. And he says, you finally missed, huh, son? And he knew I was trying to hurt him all the time but he never cried uncle he didn't like be a prima donna and that's when we broke through and he says hey you never come up to the house come on up and I went up there and uh, he did his karate stuff with Red West and, uh, uh, and he took I don't know a couple of girls went in the bedroom or went wherever they went and he said, you know, because there was all these girls up there, and I got the crumbs. He got the, he got the steak, and I got what was left over, or like, oh, uh, like sure. the rest of the guys that went up there. You know, it was almost like a miniature Hugh Hefner place. They went up there not to see Hugh Hefner, and they didn't go up to see Elvis. They went up because they knew all the girls would go up there. Back. And we became, we became
0: very friendly. Max, it's a privilege and honor time. The clock runs out here, but never on your stories. I want to continue to talk about this. Hopefully you'll join us again for further additions to this. But as if I'm still alive. Oh, you will be, brother. You'll always be alive. But you're saying this, and I hear you loudly. You'll always be remembered as Jethro Bodine. But here today, ladies and gentlemen, on the Dr. Sky Show, we're privileged and honored to listen to the stories of Max Barrett Jr. Part of that iconic television series of the 1960s and 70s, some 274 episodes. Max, I hate to cut it short, but stay on the line after we say thank you. i like to chat with you. That concludes this exciting edition of the Dr. Sky Show. Well over 15 years with great guests from the worlds of astronomy, science, technology, aviation, science, weather. And, of course, celebrity guests in the mix. Go figure. And yeah, cancel shows. <laughs> you've, heard the, you've heard the best. Max Baird, Jr., the Beverly Hillbillies. And thanks to our producer, Richard Dugan of radio station. AZSB, AM 1290 in Santa Barbara, California. Dr. Sky reminds everyone always remember to keep your eyes to the skies. And thank you. Max Spear, you.